welcome to talc teaching and learning consultation skills this is the talc talks podcast helping everyone who sees patients to improve their consultation skills to get better outcomes and this approach can even increase your job satisfaction This podcast concerns the module of TALC called Skills for Effective Explanations and Planning of Personalised Care. And it's about the chapter called What Do You Do When You Don't Know What To Do? Skills for Talking About Uncertainty. Now, if we compare a consultation to a three-act play, then the first two acts of the consultation are concerned with building an effective clinician-patient relationship and applying appropriate clinical reasoning to all the information that has been gathered. In other words, the clinician must be able to apply clinical knowledge in the specific context of a very nuanced understanding of the particular individual that's concerned. Successful explanation and planning in any third act of the consultation depends on the first two parts being successful. If explanations involve discussions of uncertainty, it is even more important that the first parts of the consultation have involved skillful listening and skillful exploration of the patient's own perspective on things. Of course, uncertainty can arise in a variety of clinical situations, and clinicians sometimes merge many different types of uncertainty together, and they may even view all uncertainty as a deficit in themselves as clinicians. But we have to think about uncertainty in a more complex way. Not all uncertainty in clinical practice is to do with the clinician's knowledge or skills. There are inherent uncertainties in clinical practice, which include uncertainty about the precise prognosis of any disease or illness, the uncertainty about the degree to which any disease will respond to treatment, and the uncertainty about when a disease state has truly arisen. If a patient has non-specific symptoms of tiredness and feeling a bit rough, will these get better with no treatment? Or are those symptoms the first signs of pneumonia or perhaps the first signs of depression? The beginnings of an illness can usually only be identified retrospectively, especially in primary care, where patients often present with early and undifferentiated illnesses. These kinds of uncertainties are inevitable and pervasive in medicine, but in a sense they need not concern us too much because they don't give rise to that important question which does arise when clinicians are uncertain and they find themselves wondering, what do you do when you don't know what to do? Many of these kinds of circumstances require specific skills from the clinician. Clinical uncertainty can arise if the diagnosis is not clear-cut and sometimes even if the right diagnostic process is uncertain. Even if the diagnosis is clear and there's a, a management plan that seems sensible, the patient may not agree, they may not accept or they may not carry out the plan. Sometimes if you need further diagnostic information, that means working with the huge variety of support services that provide the diagnostic network. Clinicians can find it difficult to negotiate this network effectively at times and there are special skills that will help. Finally, even when the diagnosis and management are known, difficulties in teamwork can give rise to many uncertainties about how best to implement a plan. 
Now these issues are discussed in detail in a book that I've written with Alison Lee and Geraldine Murphy called What You Do When You Won't Don't Know What To Do, Mapping Uncertainty in Medicine. And this means that uncertainties in clinical practice can often be worked through by applying appropriate skills. This could include effective diagnostic strategies, good networking or teamworking skills. In this chapter, though, the focus is on the specific skills that you need in consultations. These are the skills needed to explain and discuss uncertainties with patients. Clinicians often find talking about uncertainty rather difficult. They report that patients are not satisfied with expressions of uncertainty and as clinicians they feel uncomfortable themselves when they express uncertainties. Sometimes this anxiety and discomfort is relieved by very dysfunctional behaviours such as ordering a lot more tests or deferring difficult discussions to some other occasions. Sometimes Clinicians lack the skills to talk about functional disorders or lack the skills to manage non-specific illness or to encourage rehabilitation and enhance recovery. However, it's important to know that clinicians do not always have to be certain. Indeed, many of senior practitioners will say they experience just as much uncertainty late in their careers as they did at the beginning. Therefore, skills for talking about uncertainty are likely to be useful at all stages of a clinician's career. It is true that some patients will accept uncertainty expressed by senior practitioners more regularly, more readily than they do from someone they perceived as inexperienced, because if they think somebody's inexperienced or, or they simply don't know, there'll be a kind of unspoken message along the lines of, well, find me a clinician who does know what to do. And that's the kind of unspoken response that clinicians fear. However, there are effective and helpful ways to express uncertainty. And these can be linked to several of the Calgary-Cambridge skill sets. Having appropriate phrases and approaches to discuss uncertainty with patients can further help to build the clinician-patient relationship and help clinicians to share their thinking with more confidence. So let's think about some of the helpful phrases for talking about uncertainty. Sometimes it's helpful to use the skill of being able to think out loud, sharing the clinical reasoning process with the patient. Now clearly your clinical reasoning must be good enough in the first place and as clinicians we have the responsibility to ensure that. My focus here is on the consultation skills needed to explore uncertainty that arises even in the context of sound clinical reasoning. Senior practitioners can sometimes get away with simply saying, I don't know. But less experienced practitioners may then find themselves in a difficult spiral. If they start by saying, I don't know, this can lead to, I will ask my trainer, or I'd better refer you on to such and such a person. These options may not be available after training. Sometimes those options lead to the patient being referred back from secondary care, no further forwards with their uncertain problem. So what kinds of phrases do help when dealing with uncertainty? Implicit expressions of uncertainty are often better received than an overt, I don't know what the problem is, or I don't know what to do about this problem. 
Uh, many clinicians will have their own suitable phrases and it's always worth listening out for what people say to see if you can acquire some phrases for your own toolkit. But here are some to consider. Sharing your thinking means saying something like this. Well, this could be one of these two or three possible diagnoses. Then explaining the thinking that led up to that conclusion. A clinician could also say, well, there are several possibilities here. Again, followed up by, let me talk you through my thinking now. Sometimes we get uncertain because the clinical reasoning doesn't quite fit together or doesn't quite make sense. And it can be helpful to say something like, things are not quite fitting together because... And then it's often easy to follow up with my favourite, which I know as Otto Otto, or perhaps that should be Otto Hotto. And that stands for on the one hand and on the other hand. So things are not quite fitting together because on the one hand, there are symptoms that might mean this. And on the other hand, there are these physical findings that might mean something else. Another way of expressing uncertainty, particularly using probability, is to say something like, we're both hoping that these basic tests will be normal. So while we wait for them to come back, it'll be fine to start improving your pain and your symptoms straight away by trying some sensible manoeuvre. There's many ways of using expressing probability to express uncertainty, which can be helpful and more helpful than simply shrugging your shoulders and saying, I don't know. So phrases, for example, the most likely thing is, or the most likely outcome is that things will improve with time, or what usually happens is that these symptoms settle over time. These kinds of phrases can be really helpful when there's a little bit of uncertainty about exactly what's happening. When the clinical situation is unclear, it can be very helpful to relate explanations to the patient's own specific concerns and fears, which may be more important than a specific diagnosis. So here's an example. You mentioned being concerned about herpes earlier on in our conversation. Now that I've examined you, this rash is definitely not herpes. Now for some patients, that might be enough. Again, you might say something like, you were hoping for a very clear diagnosis and also you were hoping for some relief of the pain, which is a good place to start from. When you take these tablets and do these exercises, we're likely to see improvement over time. Another way of linking back your uncertainty to what the patient has mentioned already is to link it to any specific concern. So, for example, you might say something like, you mentioned your family history of cancer. That's naturally worrying. Thankfully, your current symptoms are much less likely to be caused by that because, and then you can explain why you think it's not cancer and perhaps, hopefully, what you think it is. If you can name the problem or diagnosis, do name it. The phrases and approaches that I've talked about already here mean that sensible explanations and plans can be made even if there is no clear-cut diagnosis. There's quite a lot more information about this in the TALC chapters in the section Advanced Skills for explanation, Effective Explanations and Planning Personalised Care where there's a chapter called Empowering Explanations for Functional and Persistent Physical Symptoms. There are more phrases to consider in the written resources that go along with this podcast. 
Patients' worries about serious disease must be taken seriously and considered carefully. At the same time, it's important that clinicians avoid catching the patient's anxiety when it's not relevant to do so. And there are some interesting references about the expression of physician, physician uncertainty and catching anxiety in some of the references. Finally, there can be uncertainties of a more serious nature when the patient is seriously ill or where there's an emergency situation or when things are serious but non-specific and of uncertain significance. And one way to help the uncertainty here is to show continuing concern and interest in the outcome for the patient. So, for example, it's very reasonable to say to the patient, will you call the practice or ask somebody in the family to call the practice and leave a message for me about how you get on, perhaps at outpatients or A&E? Because this shows the patient your ongoing concern and your interest in what happens to them. And for them, this is just as important as whether or not you're certain about the clinical diagnosis. Another way of using this kind of approach is to say something like, things are stable just now. and We've discussed what more concerning signs you might look out for. I will ring you in three days or after the weekend to check how you're getting on. Or you might say something like, I expect things to improve in a few days of this treatment, but please leave a message in three days' time to say things are get, if things are getting better, and if they're not getting better, I'll ring you back at that point to discuss what else might need to be done. These approaches build a strong clinician-patient relationship, which will be helpful in negotiating whatever happens next. Explaining uncertainty is also fruitfully combined with the skills of eliciting, eliciting the patient's responses and using that to develop the discussion. There's a lot of information about this in some of the other chapters in the TALC Skills for Effective Explanations and Planning of Personalised Care module. Would you like to introduce yourself, Anne? Hi, I'm Anne Thomas. I'm a GP in Manchester and a primary care medical educator also in Manchester. Thank you. Jonathan? Hi, I'm Jonathan Squibbs. I'm a final year GP trainee based in South Manchester. Thank you. Julian? Hi, I'm Julian Tompkinson. I'm a trainer and GP in Bolton and a primary care medical educator in Manchester. Thank you. In another podcast and another chapter in the talk skills for effective explanations and planning care we talked about the bathe technique which is a really useful method for helping us to deal with non-clinical problems that crop up in our consultations in our discussions today we're going to think about the ways to improve our interactions with patients who have very long-term or perhaps very complex problems long-term continuity of care is an extremely rewarding aspect of our clinical work there can still be times, though, when the patient or the clinician or, or both get a bit stuck and we can end up feeling a bit powerless. This can often happen when problems are what's called wicked problems rather than tame problems. Now, that's an interesting distinction, Anne. I'm wondering if you could start by explaining the difference between a tame problem and a wicked problem. Yeah, tame problems uh, are complicated problems rather than complex problems. So... Thinking about that, building a house is complicated. There's obviously lots of things to consider, but the problems can usually be planned for and there's usually a solution to be found. I mean, in the end, you could always start again. It's, I mean, it's not ideal, um, but if needs be, you could start again. Um, although this might be expensive, it, it wouldn't be impossible. 
Wicked problems, on the other hand, are more like something like bringing up a family. It's complex. So there's no single right way to do it. The other feature is you often don't really know how well it's going for a long time into the problem or the task. And then you can't really go back and change things. Finding solutions to one problem, say in a family, a parent taking on an extra job to alleviate a financial problem, then may cause other difficulties. For example, the children may then be unhappy because the parent isn't around and start misbehaving because they need more attention. For some patients, care is complicated. So a good example of that would be end of life care. There's so many things to consider, physical, psychological, social and care issues. They all need to be considered and coordinated. For other patients, it's complex. You have asthma, diabetes, fibromyalgia, depression, chronic back pain, and you're living in um, a difficult situation or precarious employment. Then it can be really tricky if, say, your asthma plays up and then the steroids make your diabetes worse and then you end up off work and you're losing money and then, well, you can see how it's complex. I think those are really good examples. And it's clear, isn't it, that there's clinical work for a patient like the one you describe, which we need to do properly and carefully um, and very meticulously. And that is complicated in itself. But I can also see how if that sort of set of problems goes on for a long time, both the patient and the clinician could get a bit disheartened, couldn't they? And I'm wondering if we think about the positive bathe approach, is that some an option to use in some of these more long-term circumstances? So, Julian, I'm wondering if you can explain the stages of the positive bathe for us. Yes, um, I mean it's just it's a technique that I found really useful um, over the last couple of years, and uh, I mean I I really love solving problems in a consultation where. There's a, there's a clear answer and I find that really satisfying and the consultation is finished but often as you've both said there's no obvious solution to these wicked problems and the consultations do start to feel tricky and disheartening. I think the other thing that happens is that you, you end up with these encounters that these consultations can often on a, a repeated basis so you're speaking to the same patient on a fairly regular basis and the, the conversation can become a bit cyclical. So it feels like you're not not getting anywhere personally, but I think also the patients can feel a, a bit more stuck as well. So we've obviously still got to provide medical assessments in these consultations and, and advise on on issues that that come up, but the kind of wicked issues still re- remain. So I suppose it's really important as we could still listen to these patients carefully and and actively, acknowledge the issues and empathy because there's definite evidence that changing negative attitudes and emotions into positive ones have huge health beliefs. So the positive bathe is a really useful tool to deal with some of the areas that can't be fixed, but you know, can be ameliorated and tweaked. So maybe maybe it's just about appreciating the difficulty of the issues. So the steps of, of positive bathe, there are five parts. B is for best. So what is the best thing that happened this week since or since we met? A is for affect or account. How did that feel? How can you account for that? How did it happen? T is for thankfulness. What are you most grateful for at the moment? H is for happen. How could you make these things happen more often or more regularly? And E is for empathised and empowerment. So positive regard to what's been achieved. So an example of that might be, it's great you've managed to stay at work in spite of all the difficulties that you've been faced with. Thank you, Julian. That's a really interesting summary of the things that we might be talking about instead of just talking about symptoms or problems or or the chaos in some people's lives. 
And people will often be pleased that, for example, they've seen their grandchildren or something like that. It might be something that they've enjoyed. And then thinking like, well, how could you make those enjoyable things happen more often or more regularly gives us a kind of positive move into the future. And I'd like to pick up on the remarks that you made about um, the evidence base for this. This is not just a touchy feely thing. There's quite a lot of quite serious neuroscience and psychoneuroimmunology, which shows that when we access positive emotions, it strengthens our immune system, it improves our endorphins and so on, which can help us with pain relief. And it has a lot of positive effects on people's health overall and their well-being overall. So this is some way in which the words we use and the way we talk can be healing in its own right. And there's another chapter in this um, talc module on effective explanations and planning for care on how the language we use can make a massive difference so if you're interested in this area you might want to look at the chapter which is called can words really be healing in their own right so i'm thinking about the effects in consultations and jonathan perhaps you'd like to comment on that and what what effects you found yeah of course so the positive day technique was something I was introduced to probably around 12 months ago and I certainly found whenever I've used it with patients there's been really positive impact both for them and also for, for me as a, as a clinician. I think one thing that I've certainly found is that it really just provides a bit more of a hopeful territory to patients as well so helping them to think about things that have gone well in their week and their life and I suppose this isn't about saying everything that's gone it doesn't have to be anything sort of major significant often it's things that patients probably have just taken for granted or haven't really realized but I think it's important to shift that focus um, from maybe the problems the issues that they're facing to say well you know there are some things that are going on that are positive that are hopeful and things that we can build on in the future um, and the other thing I've found with this as well is that it's really helpful for patients to see that they can use this maybe themselves at home so this can be a, giving them tools and techniques to to really sort of think about the day they're weak um, and they can start to focus maybe on things that have gone well um, and that kind of ongoing um, the fulfillment that comes from that as well and there's a couple of examples sort of I can think of to, to illustrate sort of the point as well and sort of Julian was saying about going around in cycles and about how we can become a bit frustrated sometimes when we have these challenging discussions with patients and I've had a number of people who've had maybe uh, lots of things going on such as low mood, chronic pain, issues with substance use, financial issues. Uh, and there was one I was talking with and had seen her a number of times um, and was having these same discussions of, of kind of lots of things where there's maybe things haven't gone right in their life and the struggles she was having. And I just sort of said, well, tell me about what's, what, what you've enjoyed this week. And she'd had a, a nice afternoon with her daughter. And we talked about how, um, how we could get, how she could introduce more of those and how it made her feel. And actually what I really did was change our relationship. It was something I was able to pick up on in future consultations. And we were able to talk more about that, find out more about other things she'd enjoyed and the different things she'd done to build that relationship with the daughter. And over time, the other issues didn't go away. It's just in perspective. And when we had other things to focus on, she found that they were less impactful in her life because she had other things to look forward to. So really, I think really life-changing for that patient, just being able to shift their perspective and I think the other thing is important to think about the impact it has on ourselves as well. So I think it's really nice to hear about um, positive things that happen to our patients and things that they enjoy doing as well. And, and actually being able to have those discussions as well can be really uplifting and help with our own resilience as well. Those are really fascinating examples. And thank you for that. And I think we sometimes forget that what we say and how we interact with people can literally be life changing, as you say. And that that's a very remarkable 
thing and well done for for doing that and well done for also pointing out that how this approach makes the humanity of the person come to the fore doesn't it we're having a relationship with them as a human being and actually when we do that we feel better ourselves we we feel uplifted and that makes us go home with energy to spare at the end of the day feeling like we've done a good job so that's really really interesting thank you for that jonathan Julian, when would you use a sort of straightforward bathe technique rather than this positive bathe approach? Yeah, as you said at the beginning, there's um, another podcast and, and materials on the, on the standard bathe technique. Uh, that You probably use that more where a patient comes in with an acute problem, which where they feel really stuck. So examples I, I often see is people come in frantic, stressed, really distressed, don't know what to do because of a, a dispute over a boundary in the garden with the neighbours or where the guttering is. And it, it, it always seems almost quite trivial when you hear the story, but they're absolutely stuck in the mire. And just by using a bathe, you, you're listening, you're empathising, and also just starting to, you know, the patient can direct themselves into a, a solution. Similar examples might be stress at work or problems with the boss. Whereas a positive bathe, as we've said, it's, it's probably more helpful in, in a in a chronic situation where every where the patients felt stuck and, and, and we're feeling a bit stuck and, and neither of us can really think to do what to do next. Mm, that that makes more sense and it's it's quite empowering for the patient, but it's empowering for us too to feel that we've got something we can positively try and positively engage with people. And it, it people. Well, clearly want to learn how to do this how would you set about helping clinicians to learn how to use this approach in their own consultations yeah it's i mean it's certainly not hard to find uh, examples from our clinicians in training of their experiences in dealing with complex problems it can be really helpful to explore these experiences um, and also their attitudes difficult experiences and the, this sort of lack of strategy for structuring the consultation can leave clinicians at any stage feeling maybe exasperated or sometimes feeling like these consultations are sort of a waste of their time. So by introducing the positive bathe as an option to use in these sort of situations, well, it was certainly pricked up a few ears when we start talking about it. In a group teaching setup, what we've done is uh, orchestrate a demonstration of the technique. So we would ask for a volunteer from the group um, ask them to think about a sort of complex problem, something from their own lives, not necessarily a clinical or medical problem, and then demonstrate the technique, being explicit about the different stages that Julian outlined. Then we would move on to do a simple skills rehearsal um, in groups of three. So each person within the three gets a chance to talk about an experience. So they're not acting, they're talking about something that's happening in their life or something they've experienced. And then the group of three explore the approach, taking part as the speaker and then also as the listener and the observer. So you do a round of three, so each participant gets experience in all roles. And after each round, we would ask the small group to give feedback to one another and, and then go back and practice until they've all had a chance to bathe one another in this positive way. 
I really like the idea of bathing somebody in a positive way. And I can see how for professionals, this might be quite a good way of refocusing when you're feeling a, a bit exhausted or overwhelmed, wouldn't it? Because when we're doing work, we often forget that most of the work we do is fine and we tend to focus on the problems. And so perhaps either in a group or even sometimes in a, a team meeting saying, well, you know, what's the best thing that's happened this week? You know, and how, how did that come about and how, how does it feel when that happens? And, you know, what are we most grateful for at the moment and how can we make these things happen more regularly? Can be a way for us to think about our own work in a more positive way and perhaps our relationships with others at work even in a more positive way. And it can be it has been shown, as Julian says, to have a very positive effect on individuals, but it can have a huge effect on teams as well if people take this kind of approach. So thank you very much, everybody, for a very interesting discussion. There are written materials and other resources uh, to, to expand on the positive bathe in this module, Talc, Skills for Effective Explanations and Planning Care. Thank you. This podcast is about the module which is concerned with Talc, Skills advanced skills for effective explanations and planning of personalised care and it refers to the chapter called to be or not to be how can clinicians share decision making in complex situations so there are many situations in which a shared management plan with a patient will be straightforward if the clinician uses the principles set out in the module talc essential skills for effective explanations and planning care that approach will link the patient's own concerns, questions and aspirations to the management options that the clinician has identified. Sometimes this approach is not enough, especially in complicated or complex situations, or perhaps where there's an element of equipoise, which means that the decision has significant and balanced pros and cons to it. Clinical practice inevitably involves many complex situations, and they can be thought of in these general categories. Firstly, it might be that a patient doesn't accept the clinician's recommended approach. This might be because they have different ideas about what should happen. For example, a patient might disagree with a referral for bowel cancer surgery if they find the prospect of surgery completely unacceptable. Complex and difficult decisions can arise if there are several options of roughly equivalent predicted effects, means that there has to be a choice made and a decision made about how to proceed. It could be that the clinician's suggested plan significantly interferes with elements of life which are highly valued by the patient, but not so highly valued by the clinician. For example, a patient may value avoiding medications very highly. Complex decisions can also arise when the effects of interventions are uncertain. This might be because there's limited information, or it may be that the patient differs in important ways from the population in whom an intervention has been tested. And this often applies in another situation, which is where not only is there a complex situation, but the interaction of different factors can't be predicted. For example, if a patient has multiple comorbidities, if they're taking many different medications, if they have an unstable illness, or perhaps if they're in a condition of frailty, where the effects of different interventions have never really been tested. When such complexities are present, decisions need to be shared with patients because the clinician cannot necessarily know the right answer. 
what would an effective shared decision be like in these circumstances? And here's a useful description of a good shared decision. A good shared decision is when the quality of a deci clinical decision or its patient-centeredness is the extent to which it reflects the considered needs, the considered values and the expressed preferences of a well-informed patient. The key point is that it is not the clinician's values, needs or preferences that take priority. It's the patient's needs, values and expressed preferences that take priority. At the same time, the decision must still be shared, not simply passed over to the patient. A useful way of thinking about this is to think about the different styles a clinician could adopt when making a decision. And these are four quite contrasting approaches. The first one is often called clinician knows best. And this is when the clinician takes a paternalist position and makes the decisions about the best care. This attitude sometimes has a bad press and is called paternalistic or over-controlling. But in truth, most people hope for this when the situation is life-threatening and the action needed is clear-cut. Everyone hopes for clinicians to make clear decisions when dealing with a multiply injured patient in an emergency department. If you've got a bad head injury, you don't really want to be doing shared decision-making. Another kind of style could be called the informant clinician, this is someone who promotes so-called informed choice. This clinician avoids instructions and presents patients with a lot of information to help themselves make an informed choice. While this seems good on the surface, it can result in some patients feeling as if they've been abandoned to make difficult choices in complex situations which they are unprepared for. This is often reflected in patients saying things like, well, what would you do, doctor? The interpretive clinician goes beyond this. They share information with the patient, but they don't leave the patient to make a choice in isolation. Rather, the interpretive clinician guides the decision-making using their own expert knowledge while incorporating the patient's own values and priorities. These are important differences from a simple informed choice approach. And this latter approach is usually called shared decision-making which is really a technical term for this. A shared decision-making approach requires a specific set of skills which are explored in this chapter. There is a, an even higher level expert of expertise which could be called the deliberative clinician. And this term is used when a clinician helps a patient to explore the health-related values that could be realised in their own clinical situation and perhaps even which of those values are more worthy and should be aspired to. Through dialogue about the values which are most important to the patient in their specific situation, the clinic, clinician here is acting a bit more like a teacher or perhaps a wise friend. There's a very interesting discussion about this in reference 23 if you want to follow it up. At first sight, the informant clinician giving patients an informed choice seems to respond to current ideas that more information is better and that choice is a good thing. However, having choice in itself increases anxiety. Offering information but no guidance can lead to a sense of abandonment if patients are facing difficult decisions. For example, a woman considering whether her husband, already gravely ill, 
should have an amputation after a heart attack, reported, I was told my husband could die if he didn't have the operation, or he could die during the operation. Obviously, the choice was mine. Now, why is the choice obviously the wife's choice? The clinicians here were not saying they knew best, and the patient's wife was left both with the uncertainty and the very heavy responsibility of which decision to take. Is it really helpful to completely devolve this fraught decision to the wife? If her husband dies, will she feel it's all her fault for making a wrong decision? In this situation, it would be far more helpful to have true shared decision-making, where the clinician's expertise incorporates the values and attitudes that the wife can tell him about her husband's situation. What values did her husband espouse? What were her, his aims in life? And how does that fit with the potential decisions? These issues are considered more fully in the section on uncertainty from the patient's perspective in reference 19. To achieve effective shared decisions in difficult circumstances, there are specific tasks which need to be achieved. Firstly, and in preparation, the clinician must identify clearly the decision which is to be made and the clinician must clarify how much the patient wants to be involved. And that might mean how much patient's relatives want to be involved if there are decisions when a patient doesn't have capacity for some reason, for example, if they're unconscious. Patients differ in how much involvement they want to have in difficult decision making. The wise clinician elicits a clear understanding of how much involvement the patient wishes to have in decisions about their care. Many, if not most, patients do want to be fully consulted about their care, and many may wish a relative or friend to be involved too, as support, or to actually assist in the decision-making process. The clinician must also clarify the patient's own priorities and preferences. What information they have already? What other information would they like? Patients need and prefer information in different forms. Would this individual want a written summary, a Kate's plot, a diagram, a link to a website to read beforehand perhaps? Having explained the decision to be made, what comes next and what skills are needed to bring clinician and patient together to plan acceptable and feasible care? These skills are called shared decision-making skills and they can be considered in three stages. These are team talk, option talk and decision talk. Team talk occurs when the clinician discusses how they and the patient will work together to make the best decision for that individual. The clinician outlines the alternative possibilities clearly and emphasises that final decisions will naturally differ between individuals. In other words, there is no single right answer. Team talk builds on the clinician-patient relationship that has been established throughout the consultation and of course this is covered in the module skills for building effective relationships. Using open questions and an empathic approach enables the clinician to seek out and understand the patient's preferred approaches. The clinician approaches the point of view with acceptance and in a non-judgmental way. The aim is to bring out not what is the matter with the patient, but what really matters to the patient in their life at this time. The issues that commonly need to be discussed might include 
preferences for being at home rather than in hospital, preferences for how to spend the remaining time if lifespan is likely to be limited. Does the patient want to spend more time with loved ones or are they keen to pursue information about possibilities, including, for example, that effective palliative care may extend lifespan more than aggressive chemotherapy regimes? These issues are discussed very eloquently and readably by the writer Atul Gawande, describing his own father's life and death. After team talk, there's a need to go on to option talk. Option talk enables the clinician and patient to work together to identify advantages and disadvantages from the patient's point of view and to discuss the possible benefits and harms that may result. A jargon-free way forward can be to say, what would be your reasons to say yes to this option? What could be the reasons to say no to this? The clinicians can explain their own reasons for their recommendation if they have one and clarify the patient's understanding of the clinician's reasoning. Benefits and harms must be discussed. Benefits and harms may not simply be matters of physical health. The impact on relationships, work, self-image and other health conditions or constraints may all come into the picture. The very uncertain effects of interventions in those with frailty or multimorbidity may mean that the patient's preferences for risk-taking versus a conservative approach may also come into play. Clinicians need to avoid a spurious certainty about the effects of interventions in very frail patients. And clinicians need to remember to temper their enthusiasm for intervention with clear statements about potential downsides or harms. Finally, decision talk happens when the patient's preferences have been articulated and are then integrated into the final decision. The clinician does not stand back and say, you decide, but has a part to play in weighing things up because of their clinical knowledge and understanding, especially about harms as well as benefits. The clinician's responsibility is to help the patient recognise what impact the benefits and harms could be for them as an individual. All factors need to be weighed up fully, otherwise simply giving people information for an informed choice risks abandoning them to indecision or maybe to poor decisions. Decisions about care are not only about effectiveness, although clinicians often focus on that. When plans have inherent risks of harm and variable benefits, we have to think about the patient's preferences. Preferences include trade-offs between different possibilities. For example, one patient may choose to trade off a faster recovery time from injury against taking unpaid time off work to do intensive physiotherapy. However, another individual with a similar injury may prefer to trade off a stable income against slightly more pain and a longer recovery time from the same injury because they can't attend physiotherapy without losing income. Patients may value trade-offs very differently from clinicians. Explicitly recognising and discussing the effects of patient preferences may be enough to create a way forwards. When this process doesn't occur, it's been termed the silent misdiagnosis. This means missing the correct assessment of a patient's preferences, and it can be as harmful as missing any other kind of diagnosis. There's a really interesting exploration of this topic in Reference 26. In healthcare, 
making no decision is still a decision with consequences because it may effectively mean taking the option of not doing anything. If a decision is to be deferred, for example to allow for discussion with a family member, a specific time frame should be specified to ensure that the decision-making conversation is completed and a firm decision either way is made. If the decision is to be briefly delayed, the clinician must ensure that a relevant way of conveying the decision is in place. This may mean seeing the patient or speaking to them on the phone, or the patient may talk to an administration team member. Clinicians need fail-safe systems for chasing up these decisions and recording them in the notes, with the rationale noted as well. Now, many clinicians believe they already do shared decision-making. However, patients don't believe this and consistently ask for more involvement in decisions about their care. The concept, nothing about me without me, captures that idea. As educators introduce these more formal skill sets, perhaps clinicians will be able to act in more sophisticated and patient-centred ways. Shared decision-making is a complex area of healthcare and goes beyond the skills needed to incorporate a patient's perspective in a shared management plan. At times of distress, in complex situations, the clinician who remains calm and uses shared decision-making skills properly can bring great comfort to patients and families, as well as effective decision-making. Enabling patients to follow their own preferred path can be a humbling and even joyous experience when the clinician observes patients taking charge and being able to express themselves fully in their own lives. This podcast is part of the module TALC Advanced Skills for Effective Explanations and Planning of Personalised Care. And it's about the chapter called Never Say Never, How to Say No While Still Saying Yes. Ideally, in the meeting between experts of an effective consultation, Two people's perspectives merge together into a shared plan of action that both parties consider will be useful and relevant. The patient, who is an expert in themselves and in their own life situation, brings that perspective to the expert healthcare professional who has specific expertise on offer aimed at improving the patient's welfare. When all the core skills of the consultation are used effectively, this process will usually proceed quite smoothly. But what if the clinician is faced with a patient who asks, or even seems to demand, something that the clinician feels they should say no to? This could be for a variety of reasons. It could be something that the clinician would prefer not to happen because the clinician disagrees with the proposed action. Or it might be that the clinician considers that that thing cannot happen because that action requested is simply not feasible or is not available. Alternatively, it might be that the clinician thinks that that thing should not happen because it could cause definite harm to the patient. This chapter explores those situations where clinicians might feel that they somehow have to say no, while at the same time wishing to avoid confrontation or arguments with patients. Getting into an argument can cause a rupture to the clinician-patient relationship and make care less effective overall. Here are some examples where saying no might be considered, but can also give problems. The patient says, I want some antibiotics for this cold. The clinician may immediately start thinking, well, colds don't need antibiotics, they get better on their own. Or what if a patient says, 
I want an NHS referral to this complimentary therapy spa in Italy to cure my psoriasis. The clinician may be thinking to themselves, such a referral pathway simply does not exist. The patient might say, I want a referral for a whole body scan now that I'm 40 this year to ensure everything is all right in my body. The clinician may start thinking of all the reasons why this is really not a good idea. However, a straight no is not a shared management plan, even if the clinician feels pretty sure they don't want to go along with the patient's suggestions. In many suggestions, in many situations, a direct and abrupt no, that isn't going to happen or no, I can't do that may come across to some patients as paternalistic, overbearing or even aggressive, however politely the clinician speaks. In transactional analysis, there's a, a categorisation of our psyche, which is called parent-adult-child. And in this situation, the clinician may start to be experienced like an overbearing parent who says no. This can drive the patient away from responding as an adult and into the child position. The effect of this can be childlike responses like sulking or having a tantrum or sneaking away to do the undesired thing behind the back of the clinician as parent somewhere out of sight. None of these effects are helpful and what is needed is a calm adult-adult discussion to find the best way forwards. Clinicians can use various approaches to achieve appropriate agreement about the next steps while still maintaining an effective relationship with the patient and this usually means that arguments or complaints can be avoided. Like many advanced skill sets, the process of getting to agreement when clinician and patient start off disagreeing is all about using the core consultation skills but with extra attention and greater intensity. This chapter assumes the clinician already has some familiarity with the core skills of establishing and maintaining rapport in understanding the patient's agenda, that the clinician can gather information using active listening skills, especially about the patient's own thoughts, concerns and hopes, and perhaps that the clinician understands the process of picking up clues and cues. The clinician needs to be able to build the relationship using empathy and compassion and use positive language, remaining non-judgmental and accepting an attitude. And using chunking and checking skills during explanation or planning suggestions will ensure that the patient's perspective and responses are taken on board, even if there's some disagreement. So if we assume that these basics are in place, how can we build on these skills to result in better outcomes when it might seem that the clinician and patient are in conflict about what should happen? A key priority is to avoid something called premature closure, which can be thought of as a thinking process whereby we make up our minds too quickly. This is a leading cause of errors or difficulties generally because information that doesn't fit tends to be ignored. In the situation of potential conflicts that we're discussing now, premature closure means thinking no straight away. Remember the no in your brain will probably show on your face and in your body language too. Rather, as clinicians, we need to remain open, curious, undecided and flexible until we've had a full conversation with the patient. This replaces no with a kind of yes and mindset. The aim is to understand the patient's perspective first before we seek to get the patient to understand our views 
and to find common ground before setting any specific boundaries. This means avoiding saying no immediately and it also means avoiding saying yes immediately too. Here are some key concepts to bear in mind when faced with potential conflicts and I'm going to explore them all in a bit of detail. First of all, don't mention irrelevant options in the first place. Secondly, if a patient wants something you are unlikely to agree to, don't reply immediately. Remember to thank the patient for talking to you about the issue and remain open. Think yes to begin with, using words or phrases such as, OK, tell me more. I'm interested to understand your thinking more fully. Avoid saying no and continue to listen and be curious. The patient will still listen to you if you haven't said no yet. And think about what the common ground is. That's to say things you can both agree on. And then think about various grey shades of yes rather than a black and white no. So let's think about irrelevant options that it's better not to mention in the first place. One of the very first things clinicians can do to avoid having to backtrack and say no is to be very careful about mentioning what options are on offer. Some conflicts can be traced back to the clinician's own suggestions. If a clinician says something like, well, there's an experimental treatment available in Utah, but the NHS won't fund it, a conflict that doesn't need to happen can arise, and the clinician has also given false hope. If a clinician plunges straight into a comment like, colds don't need antibiotics, they will risk a pointless argument with the patient about what's not going to happen before the clinician has even completed an assessment about what will be needed. If the patient brings up a suggestion that's unavailable, unsuitable or even potentially harmful, still avoid premature closure. Remain open and curious and listen carefully to what the patient says. This is using the skill of parking a clue or cue that is explored more fully in Talc Skills for Effective Information Gathering. Can reading between the lines make for more accurate diagnosis? If a patient does say something that you are pretty unlikely to agree to, again, don't reply immediately. Clinicians often feel that a direct question or statement such as, will you refer me for a whole body MRI scan, please? I've got insurance, requires an immediate direct answer. It's far better to pause and wait to see what the patient says next, while indicating full interest and a positive approach. Use the non-verbal signals of an open expression, appropriate eye contact, and perhaps a gentle nod to indicate understanding. If the patient hesitates, encourage them to tell their story in more detail with a simple phrase like, go on, or tell me more. The more information the clinician obtains about the background to a particular request, and the sooner the clinician shows full interest in the patient's perspective on things, the easier it will be to come to a joint decision with the patient in the end. Thanking the patient for talking to you about the issue is another important way of avoiding premature closure and also promoting trust. The clinician can promote a positive atmosphere and build trust from the patient by thanking them for coming to talk about the issue at hand. This should be sincerely felt. The fact that the patient is there means they are asking for your professional involvement and by implication your thoughts and opinions, even if this is not expressed explicitly. The clinician can express this clearly in a phrase such as, thank you for coming to discuss this with me, or 
I appreciate having the opportunity to talk with you about this. Saying something like, you've raised an important question about what needs to happen next, is a way to show that the patient's concerns are being taken very seriously. This will help both parties to enter a more positive mindset. Remaining open and thinking yes to begin with, using words like I see, OK, tell me more, is also really helpful. The key message here is to really understand what the patient is thinking about or worried about and what the request means for them. Explore the background to their request. What's on their mind? What emotions and feelings are attached to this request? The clinician's genuine concern and interest in the background and empathic responses to the patient's expressed or implied feelings will build a stronger rapport and develop trust. This is an opportunity to be curious and interested in what has brought them to this specific point of view and to remain open and non-judgmental. Accepting the patient's perspective as valid for them is one way to express a grey shade of yes rather than saying no. Clinicians' own thought processes are often driven by quite different considerations than those applied by patients. Clinicians rely on guidelines and evidence from scientific studies, as well as the expectations of the shared community of practice they work in. However, sources that seem trustworthy to patients might be very different. They might be thinking about what my friend said, what the Daily Mail said, or even the claims of an advertisement. Indeed, some patients may actively mistrust some medical science for all kinds of reasons. Try and be non-judgmental of the other person's thought processes. Avoid saying no directly and continue to listen and be curious. The patient will still listen to you if you haven't said no yet. Conflicts or arguments usually arise at the point when a harsh boundary is set. We never do that or when the clinician seems not to respect the concerns and thoughts of their patients. Active listening and feeding back what has been said to ensure clarity helps to create trust and mutual respect. In some situations, this may be enough to resolve the conflict. For example, if a patient says something like, my mum thinks an oxygen cylinder to use at home will improve her cancer pain, so I need you to get me one today, it's best responded to empathically and in an accepting way. It sounds like you're really keen to help your mother with her cancer pain and she thinks breathing oxygen could help. The clinician has not said no and yet at the same time is opening a door to a more helpful conversation about how hard it is to watch your mother suffering pain and about what the best way to relieve that pain might be. Think about what the common ground is between you. That means things you can both agree on. While continuing to maintain a dialogue, the clinician can begin to comment on the areas of agreement on the common ground that exists between people. When doing this, the clinician is in effect saying a partial yes to what the patient is saying. This allows the discussion to be much more about grey areas rather than a stark yes or no. For example, the clinician may be able to agree about the importance of a particular subject to a patient, as in the example about the oxygen I just mentioned. Or another example could be something like, I totally understand why you would be worried about lung cancer, seeing as your grandfather has just died from it. This shows agreement and a degree of shared understanding, even if the clinician is also inwardly thinking, but that doesn't mean I can agree to an annual whole body scan when you're only 21 years now. 
common ground might also be found in understanding the patient's predicament. So, for example, saying, I know you've been so troubled by your skin problems, so it makes sense that you might be looking for some alternative approaches, perhaps the Italian spa. Recognise and accepting previous experiences can also be helpful. You mentioned antibiotics, and from your notes, you have been troubled with quite a lot of infections in the past, haven't you? This kind of setting out of common ground means that the patient is likely to agree with the clinician. They'll be in a mindset of saying yes to what the clinician says. And starting from a point where you both agree is always a far better place to begin. This means you can then lead into thinking about various grey shades of yes rather than a black and white no. There are many different ways to express a partial yes and continued dialogue will help with this. The chunking and checking approach from TALC Essential Skills for Effective Explanations and Planning of Personalised Care will help a lot. This is where the clinician invites the patient's response after each offering of dialogue. Begin by asking what the outcome is that the patient is looking for. Is this reassurance that they are disease free? A treatment that a friend recommended? Or perhaps an improvement in their ability to function? Then ask them what they know about the proposed intervention. What benefits are they specifically expecting from this intervention? Do they know about any downsides or potential harms? Ask if they'd like to know a bit more about the pros and cons of the action proposed. It's very likely that they will answer yes. And you can offer this common ground by saying something like, we both want to look at this action carefully and decide what to do. Then there are a number of options that the clinician can invoke to avoid a direct and blunt no. Firstly, think about offering reasonable alternatives such as, in this situation we usually offer this approach because, or something like, this other option is usually considered better because, and so on. Get the patient's response, ask what they think about what you've just said. This includes saying, let me tell you about the things I can do in these circumstances, which is positive and also hints at the setting of appropriate boundaries. Another way forward can be to use the phrase that explains something like when the conditions are right. Explain the circumstances in which the particular action is usual. For example, in women with absolutely no family history, we usually offer breast screening to women over 50 because that's thought to balance the risks of screening with the benefits. How does that compare to your situation? And that could invite a, a patient aged 35 with no family history with a normal breast examination to reflect on whether that general information applies to their own circumstances. In a way, the patient themselves might then up saying, saying no to themselves rather than the clinician having to say it. Another grey shade of yes is to say something like not right now. And there are different approaches to, here, to this. Let me think about it and get back to you is one approach. Another way forward is to offer an explanation of the conditions in which the proposed intervention would be considered. Here's an example. We know that antidepressant tablets don't help people with mild symptoms all that much and there are significant downsides. We would tend to consider them more in patients who are too depressed to work or whose sleep is very poor or where there's weight loss or plans for self-harm. It's really good that those things don't seem to currently apply to you. 
And again, this could be followed up with reasonable alternatives using the skills of therapeutic conversation, for example. Another way of saying a grey shade of yes is to say something like, I need some extra information to make this possible. Explain and explore how further information is needed. So if a patient mentions her sister's doctor in Australia who said, I ought to have some bowel tests, it's essential to know exactly what's wrong with your sister before proceeding so that we can be sure to use the right tests. Ask the patient, can you get that information for me? And then have an agreement about follow-up on this. Another way forward is to really discuss in detail the potential harms or dangers of the proposal. The clinician has still not actually said no, so the patient will still be listening. Remember that the potential dangers could include risks to the patient, but there may also be dangers and potential risks for the clinician. So you might need to say, I'd be on very dodgy ground with my colleagues, the GMC, the Nursing and Midwifery Council or the courts, whichever applies, if I did that because, and explain what those risks to your professional situation are. Another way forward is to offer follow-up. If there's further information needed, or an exploration of the feasibility of a request, or the need for a discussion with a colleague first, then suggest, let's discuss this again when we know about whatever needs to be found out about. In all these discussions, if it still seems that the patient is fixed on a particular course of action that the clinician cannot sign up to, it is then finally, at this point, reasonable to explain it. Another thing that's very important is to share your own thinking and to clarify that there are several things to consider. The Otto-Hotto approach is one of the most useful here. That means, on the one hand, on the other hand. Here's an example. On the one hand, I can see why you feel it would be more convenient for you to have six months supply of cocodamol as you're going for a long stay with your sister. On the other hand, I'm very concerned about the risks of that in view of your previous history of self-harm and taking overdoses. This could then lead into offering reasonable alternatives, including information about registering as a temporary patient when away from home, maybe even an offer to speak to you at the sister's GP or write them a letter. Avoid using words like can't, won't, don't. Rather than starting with no, that can't happen or no, we don't do that, the clinician can ask permission to share their own thinking and explain things. This is rarely refused. Then you can proceed to explain any specific dangers or harms of the proposed action or the specific legal or formal restraints for an exa- um, for example, an action that's actually illegal or which contravenes the responsibilities of the professional registration with whichever body applies to the clinician. That could be the GMC, the NMC or other similar body. Then pause without actually saying no and wait for the implications of what you're saying to sink in. Here's an example. I realise why you want me to write on the insurance form that you saw me on the 12th because that will help you to get a medical confirmation to cancel your flights. Actually, I didn't see you till the 30th. If I say otherwise, that would be fraud. I could get struck off for that and then I wouldn't be able to work. I'd lose my job. This is another one of those instances when the facts are friendly. Stick to the facts and not your opinion or what the patient wants. And the patient is far more likely to accept this. 
In the written materials that go with this chapter, there are suggestions for how to learn these skills and how to practice them. And there are some useful scenarios that set out some ideas about the kinds of things that patients often ask us, which we sometimes need to say no to. This podcast was brought to you by NHS Professional Educators, making training available to all.